Well, it is, Phil. I've been smoking this pot all day, and I still can't get higher. What kind are you smoking? Well, all marijuana's the same, isn't it? That's the mistake a lot of people make. But not in Vietnam. Well, it was one fine morning, I was knocked out of bed By a thumb-thumb rhythm I heard over my head I went into the hall to see what it could be It was a rock and roll uprising all around me Now there's a radio station called WCDN FM Ann Arbor The home of alternative radio radio. rio <laughs> I sure wish I could get one of those shirts Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, I'm so pleased to have here in the studio Donovan Hone. Donovan, welcome. Right, thank you for having me. Well, thanks for slugging through the rain with me to get here, too. I, the Seven Seas song didn't seem, um, it seemed appropriate on several levels there. <laughs> By good old Echo and the Money Man. <laughs> a bit of a typhoon on the way. But I guess this sort of weather doesn't at all mean anything to you because you must be immune from, this is just a drizzle compared uh, to... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. An old salt like me, this is just a drizzle. You are a salty <laughs> dog, right? Or an old salt. <laughs> More nicknames ahead. A middle-aged salt. <laughs> no. no, we have to de- deny that for as long as we can. Um, Donovan, you're in town. Um, you're back in Ann Arbor. This is this is a, a, a homecoming of sorts. Um, you're, you're here to read for the Zell Visiting writers series and you're attending classes while you're here and um on the on the on the strength of moby duck the true story of twenty eight thousand eight hundred bath toys lost at sea and of the beachcombers oceanographers environmentalists and fools including the author who went in search of them um this this is your first book it is my first book yeah it's a tome it it you know it's it's uh it's uh, 400 pages long though there are lots of endnotes, so really it's, um, if, if 400 sounds too intimidating, we can say it's 380 pages long. <laughs> and, the, and it's not like you went for like the tiny font to make it a shorter book. No. <laughs> no. um, but before we go any further, I'll just read the short bio on your book jacket, sure. as is tradition here at Living Writers. Donovan Hone is a journalist whose work has appeared in Harper's Magazine, the New York Times Magazine, Outside, and the Best Creative Nonfiction. The recipient of a Whiting Writers Award and a National Endowment for the Arts Creative Writing Fellowship, and formerly a senior editor at Harper's, he is currently features editor at GQ. He lives in New York with his wife and children. Beth, Bruno, and Malachi. Ma- Beth, Bruno, and Malachi. Malachi. Yeah. So who will get to meet in the book? 
Uh, Beth Ma- and Bruno. Beth and Bruno. <laughs> Mal- Malachi only gets to appear in the dedication, and he's not even named. I suppose I should have had him to ah. the future editions. Yeah. Oh, so even in the epilogue, that's true. He, he wasn't there yet he, for the he, epilogue he, either. Uh, he isn't really. I mean, he's he's. Uh, I think I think Beth in the in the epilogue. Bruno 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 makes a few cameo appearances in the book, but yeah. Yeah, he's a great character in the book. I wonder when he, as he gets older, what he'll think of his character. I slipped <laughs> his yeah. characterization within. He's come to a couple of readings, but actually, uh, uh, one of them he ended up uh, during. Well, I was, I was reading that passage where where he slips and uh, he'd fallen asleep at that point, so it's okay. <laughs> so I won't know. So he didn't start standing up and waving to the crowds. No, no. And uh, um, well, welcome back to to Michigan. I say welcome back because you came here for your MFA. I did. Um, a, a few years ago, not not too long ago, two thousand two to two thousand four. And yeah. So, yeah, and and do do you get back to to Michigan a lot? Because I know you've got some good good pals here. And yeah, you know, um, the uh, I actually started uh, writing. Well, not started, but I did a, a a big chunk of the writing of this book I did in Ann Arbor um, because I do have some dear friends who. Uh, did the MFA program and uh, have uh, remain uh, part of the Ann Arbor community and uh, are teaching here and all that. So I come out regularly. Do you want to give them a shout out? Oh uh, <laughs> well, I'll I'll give out a shout out to 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 uh, people um, who are going to be putting me up uh, later this weekend: uh, Jeremiah Chamberlain and Natalie Bukopoulos, my dear friends. Yes. Hello. Maybe maybe they're listening. Uh, <laughs> Hope so. Um, well, thanks so much for being here today, Donovan, to to chat talk with me about the book, and and thanks in advance for coming to my class on Friday. Sure. Um, the students are looking forward to it, and I almost wish they could all be in here because. But you have more questions ahead. Okay. Um, this you'll yes. This this first hour is just the beginning, Donovan. Okay. <laughs> that didn't. That sounds vaguely threatening, but I'm, <laughs> I'm under I'm under indictment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not as bad as like if we're in front of the Senate That's committee true. on blah blah blah. Um, <laughs> Well, well, Donovan, let's talk a little bit about your your how you got to Moby Duck. Like this, we we know you came to an MFA program. Before yeah. that, you got a master's um, uh, from Boston University. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, was that also in writing? Was that? It was. I was like twenty four and uh, and wanted to study uh, fiction writing. And uh, yeah, I was I was in Boston, uh, and I did poetry out here. I had a hard time choosing. What sort of writing to write? I wondered about that. Like, what, what your your background in the your the because I saw that you won Hopwood Awards while you were here, yeah. and one of them was in poetry. So I thought, oh, he must be a poet then. I I'd like to say I'm a lapsed poet. Um, <laughs> Because you can undo that, I suppose. Um, but it, it's the first love was poetry. Um, and when did you start writing it? Uh, oh, you know, um, uh, when I was a distressed teenager, um, or even even maybe even a distressed distressed prepubescent. I mean, it was um, so so. Yeah, poetry uh, was the first love. Um, were you reading poetry back then too, or was it just something you I, started to write? I was. This? I was. Why are you? Don't win. <laughs> I was an English geek. I mean, I, I yeah. Um, no, I was I, I, in my senior year of high school. For fun, I I wrote 
a 70-page thing on 20th century poetry <laughs> as an extracurricular project. I was crazy about it. Yeah. Well, who were some of the superstars that surfaced well, in that, that, know, es- that essay? Back then, it was I was uh, I was um, uh, it was limited to those I'd kind of been introduced to in in English classes. Um, you know, I'd, so I had this idea that I was going to continue my my uh, my my education in the in the poetic canon in, in English uh, picking up from in the early 20th century so I spent a lot of time with Stevens and Williams and Pound and Eliot and, and some, read some Robert Lowell and just started getting close to the present uh, um, but uh, so it took, took me to college before I got closer to the present yeah. well I, and it's no surprise that actually these are are these these poets, people like they're people your life, like they're because yeah. you bring Wallace Stevens in um, yeah. the, the anecdote of the jar, yeah. right? Um, and and how and that's one of it seems like what you're doing here in this very long project that with the precursor, mm. I guess, and <laughs> this early precursor that you just mentioned, um, but is that you're you're making these almost poetic reaches and leaps mm. into many different moments, mm. so that. That makes sense. I'm bringing someone like Wallace Stevens into yeah. the the dialogue. Yeah, I mean, I I think that that the the uh, the way where do I how do, what what brings things together for me is I, I think that the that the the touchstones for me um, are books that can go by different names. Um, um, Thoreau called Walden a poem. Uh, even though it's in prose, um, was you, that a touchstone book for you in the making of Moby Duck, it, it as was, well as, of course, Melville, who you're constantly yeah. referencing as well? Obviously, I feel like I went from uh, from uh, Thoreau um, to to a point where I outgrew Thoreau. Um, How so? Can you? Thoreau, I mean, for I think for a number of reasons, um, uh, uh, you know, he is a devoted, lifelong bachelor, uh, which is interesting to me. And um, I don't think he's uh, he can sometimes get get simplified into um, a into into a kind of transcendental uh, author of of self help books, and he isn't, and he's. He's confused in interesting ways, um, uh, but he's not as much. Uh, um, uh, uh, he's not as much um, a writer of doubt. I think doubt is is where Melville is, and um, and so there's a way in which in which I think I, as I grew older, felt more at home with Melville. But it also it does matter. I think in some interesting ways. Not to I don't want to be. Um, Overly determined in a bio, in a in reading Melville biographically, but I do think he's a you know he's he's a father and um, and as 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 there's there there are there are, there are things in in his book there's something very pure about about Thoreau um, uh, that's that uh, appealed to me when I was uh, able to imagine. Um, uh, that kind of uh, purity, and I'm, I'm thinking of that in, in his in his commitments um, and in his integrity. Uh, whereas whereas Melville, there's there's more of a um, of, of 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 a kind of a um, a chaos, and 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 you feel the the swings between between ecstasy and despair, and and um, and and beauty and doubt, and 
So, um, and yeah. it, it seems like this is this is this is great because it seems like Walden is it's this um, created document. Like mm-hmm. very much, he has intentions for it. It's almost as if it's a. I don't know. It's going and in the transcendentalists, it's part of the the manifesto of the mm-hmm. time, really. Mm-hmm. So it's shaped with an intention mm-hmm. rather than as like a quest. So mm-hmm. so I think it makes sense that there isn't that that doubt in right. there, as you say. Right. Uh, that makes a lot of sense um, because he was creating a character in Walden, wasn't he? Mm-hmm. This 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 idea of a man who is actually very far from society is a man who walked into town pretty much every day to get mm-hmm. the daily paper um, and, and whose parents didn't live far down the railroad mm-hmm. tracks from him and who hung out with Emerson and right. Hawthorne and his wife. He planted their garden for them before they moved in, right? right. So, so there's this idea of this created character and voice in Walden. Mm-hmm. And then how does that... There's a question in here for you, <laughs> Mr. Hone. Um, how does that go with the created character in Moby Duck of of you? Or is this, or is it that, did you have a sense of, I'm creating a character in this book that is me as a speaker, as a, as a person on a quest, as a searcher? Yeah. Yeah, no, no. I, I think I, I think I, I'm, I'm, I'm following your drift. Um, <laughs> the, the. Uh, uh, I mean, I think that one of the questions you have writing nonfiction is when you, you, when you use the first person and you're speaking as an I, that there's, there's a way inescapably that that is um, a narrator, uh, in much as uh, as Ishmael's a narrator of of Moby Dick, which is a novel. You know, in, in a way that it's that it's a, that it's a, a created. Um, almost fictional um, uh, persona um, uh, that it's not like some some sort of um, uh, innocently uh, autobiographical self that it's you 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 have to in, invent the who the persona is on the page. Um, so there is to some degree, yes, that's true. Uh, and How do you? What's the tension like with at least with your experience here with Moby Duck? Um, how how conscious like can you be conscious of that and write within it or is that something you sort of have to push off <laughs> and know that you'll shape later but you just write as from the from the heart or i don't know i don't mean to make it sound cliched no, no i i mean there's it's it, the the i think that the that um the story that I tried to tell in the book is in part journalistic and there are times where I shift into a kind of radical um almost uh third person omniscience um (laughs) there are there and and it's and it's fun to do that and there that when i do that there are uh, the there are reasons i made those choices um it's a first person book um because in the end um well for a number of different reasons one the um the nature of the journey which was to pursue these bath toys lost at sea was one that was thematically very resonant with what was things going on in my life at the time, which was becoming a father, um, thinking about childhood a great deal. Um, but also, um, I felt uh, that a first person was necessary um, because I was going to be um, taking the readers on a journey and any any good journey story you need to have um you need to have characters you're following uh um and frequently in in each of the different chases in the book that that organized the journey i had traveling companions and tried to turn the stage over to them but what connects the the all the 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 disparate travels was is is in the end 
my journey. I know it's 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 mine at the beginning and and mine at the end. And I felt that I was um, partly simply to keep it from feeling overly picaresque. Um, but it also I I like um, autobiographical writing. Um, uh, the personal essayistic mode and wanted the book to be this is where I think um, I, I felt thought the most about um, Moby Dick is that it's a novel uh, that that novel is a journey through space and time in pursuit of a whale but it's also um, a journey of the mind you know um, uh, it's a it's it's a journey um, uh, he, he goes as he says um, swimming through libraries as well as sailing across oceans and so I wanted um uh, the book to do both of those things as well. And it does yeah. indeed. We'll take a short break and we'll be right back. You're listening to Living Writers today on the program. Donovan Hone is here. His book, Moby Duck. We'll be right back. You didn't have to say that I'm no good Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Donovan Hone joins me in the studio. Uh, his book, Moby Duck, the true story of 28,800 bath toys lost at sea and of the beachcombers, oceanographers, environmentalists, and fools, including the author who went in search of them. Um, thanks to Brian Delaney for engineering, making us sound good today. Um, and... That is a that's a whopper of a title, isn't it, Donovan? <laughs> it is, it is. You know, it's funny. The I, I, the title has gotten uh, a lot of commentary. Uh, it's it, it is long. There was uh, an essay in the Millions that was about how uh, that was um, about the phenomenon of really long titles, uh, and pointed to my book as a particularly egregious example, and oh, and and, hey. and, sp- and speculating that it was all in order to get generate Google search terms, um, which I promise. Uh, uh, you had had nothing to do with it. They obviously haven't read the book. Then I mean, right. this is just your way. Like it's your way. Right. Right. Well, it's 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 meant to be a um, uh, you know a whimsical nod towards the 19th century travel narratives, some of which had subtitles um, far longer than mine. Um, it was also though because the book to me um, is a little bit of a cipher. If you just see the title and the image on the cover, you might mistake it for a, a different sort of book, a novelty book, a children's book. What is this book? So it felt like that. An expository subtitle was necessary. Interestingly, the British publisher, though, was going to go with. Um, I had an alternate title that was my original subtitle. Um, that's much um, 
uh, quieter and shorter, which was simply it's Moby Duck and Accidental Odyssey. And that's what it's going to go as uh, in England. And that was your, that was... That was my original subtitle. And then it was, it was really thinking about needing to telegraph to um, uh, different readers um, because it's a, it's a, it is a mongrel of a book. <laughs> it's, a, it's a travel narrative um, and, and there's a lot of en- environmental reporting in it as well. And um, there's a lot of science writing. And, and yet the tone of the book is, um, is, has more levity than things that are usually um, classified in the environmental section or the nature writing section of a bookstore. So I wanted all of that to somehow um, uh, come through in the subtitle. And so it's no accident also that you're including yourself in the, yeah. and, and as a, like a nod and in a, in a funny exactly. way yeah. and, well, and, and hum, with, with humility as well. Right. Well, and, and, and that's also hoping to signal that it's uh, uh, to at least alert people to, to the autobiographical elements of it as well. So that is that's a it, it's it is wonderful to hear the intention behind. It was intended. Whether it's successful or not, I leave that to, to do, others. Do you say it all the time? Um, <laughs> that's true. It's true. <laughs> I think I've taken to just referring to it by its title. Um, uh, yeah. yeah. And and with um, I actually meant to bring you, which is probably not an original thing, but a duck. Yeah. Um, that's. Uh, that the li- a librarian here had given me that has an M on it. So I'll bring it to class oh, for you on good. Friday. I if don't have one you of those want yet. another <laughs> in your collection. Do you how many do you have at this well, point and I did people did start giving them to me. Um and, <laughs> and then and then I think I'd make an exception for yours because the Meteorist Michigan is dear to my heart. I did make it clear that as, as, as welcome as the gesture is, I don't actually um, have any great desire to acquire a collection of, of rubber duckies. Um, uh, and so, Bruno feels similarly. You know, I, they, they, they do, my, both my uh, boys do, do, do play with uh, um, duckies in the bathtub as well as the other uh, bath toys that went adrift because I have, I have a few sets of them now. Uh, every, in fact, uh, one of them I brought with me to Ann Arbor. I fetched from the bathtub this morning. So, is it so? Is it sort of a lucky charm in some ways? Like when you're going, because you've been on on tour for the book for a yeah. while, and it sounds like you've got a European tour. Then, yeah, I, I get to do London and Australia in 2012. Wow. Um, the uh, um, uh, it's not even so much a charm as as I like to I like to brandish them uh, theatrically uh, at certain moments. So, and why not? Why not? <laughs> Well, um, well, let's. Would you mind reading, uh, sure. Donovan? I'm wondering because there were a couple of passages I was thinking about uh, reading. That since I haven't really said for your listeners, explained um, the story that is the germ of all these travels. That maybe this this section from the beginning makes the most sense. To let's, do. Yes. Uh, and this is from the very beginning of the first chapter after the prologue. We know where this spill occurred. 44.7 degrees north, 178.1 degrees east, south of the Aleutians near the international date line, in the stormy latitudes renowned in the age of sail as the graveyard of the Pacific, just north of what oceanographers, who are, on the whole, less poetic than mariners of the age of sail, call the subarctic front. We know the date, January 10th, 1992, but not the hour. For years, the identity of the ship was a well-kept secret. But by consulting old shipping schedules published in the Journal of Commerce and preserved on scratched spools of microfiche in a library basement, I, 
by process of elimination, solved this particular riddle. The ship was the Evergreen Ever Laurel, owned by a Greek company called Technomar Shipping and operated by the Taiwanese Evergreen Marine Corporation, whose fur green containers, with the company's curiously sylvan name emblazoned across them in white block letters, can be seen around harbors all over the world. No spools of microfiche have preserved the identities of the officers and crew, however, let alone their memories of what happened that stormy day or night. And if the logbook from the voyage still exists, it has been secreted away to some corporate archive, consigned, for all intents and purposes, to oblivion. We know that the ship departed Hong Kong on January 6th, that it arrived in the port of Tacoma on January 16th, a day behind schedule, and that the likely cause for this delay was rough weather. How rough exactly remains unclear. Although it did so on other days, on January 10th, the Ever Laurel did not fax a weather report to the National Weather Service in Washington, D.C. But the following morning, a ship in its vicinity did, describing hurricane-force winds and waves 36 feet high. If the Ever Laurel had encountered similarly tempestuous conditions, we can imagine, if only vaguely, what might have transpired. Despite its grandeur, rocked by waves as tall as brownstones, the colossal vessel, a floating warehouse, weighing 28,904 deadweight tons and powered by a diesel engine the size of a barn, would have rolled and pitched and yawed about like a toy in a jacuzzi. At some point on a steep roll, two columns of containers stacked six high above deck snapped loose from their steel lashings and tumbled overboard. We can safely assume that the subsequent splash was terrific, like the splash a train would make were you to drive it off a seaside cliff. We know that each of the twelve containers measured eight feet wide and either twenty or forty feet long and that at least one of them, perhaps when it careened into another container, perhaps when it struck the ship's rails, burst or buckled open as it fell. We know that as the water gushed in and the container sank, dozens of cardboard boxes would have come bobbing to the surface, that one by one they too would have come apart, discharging thousands of little packages onto the sea, that every package comprised a plastic shell and a cardboard back, that every shell housed four hollow plastic animals, a red beaver, a blue turtle, a green frog, and a yellow duck, each about three inches long, and that printed on the cardboard in colorful letters in a bubbly childlike font were the following words, the first years, floaties, they float in tub or pool, play and discover, made in China, dishwasher safe. <laughs> they float in tub, pool, or ocean. <laughs> That could be their new <laughs> tagline. <laughs> Thank you, Donovan. Sure. So, so this because um, you're laughing when you read that too. What? Why? When yeah, I, I mean, the 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 book for me. The reason why this story captured my imagination enough to investigate it and then to write a book about it, I think, really lies in in the image of 
of these duckies falling off a ship. And it turns out, of course, that's what the, the story that was uh, that made its way in, uh, in, around the world in, in news reports was that rubber duckies lost at sea. And, and now, as, as all your listeners know, there were, in fact, the much-neglected uh, turtle, beaver, and frog. Um, but, but it's that image, the magnitude of a container ship and the tininess of the duck, the wildness of the ocean which seems to me about as far from a bathtub, the native habitat of the rubber duck, as you can get. You know, the t- a ducky is, a, is, is an emblem of, of, of domesticity and childhood. And even, even if it were an actual living duck, that's the pastoral. It doesn't belong out there on the wilds of the deep. That, that, yeah. And then, and of course, once I started finding, this is part of the fun for me, I think, in... in, in, in Going deep into research, even when the story might seem trivial, is I just I just love the some of the details you uncover. I mean, once 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 I found and I did manage to get the actual actual packaging from from 1992 uh, from the toy factory. How um, did you do that? I, I, well, because I went to China to to go to the factory that made them, and and ended up corresponding with the manager of the factory, and he sent me a PDF. Um, that helps to have the internet, but you know the. the that falling in the 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 line the the the, the copy uh, there's just something about that I float in Tubber Pool, uh, play and discover. I mean, just those are so resonant with all these things we think of about with childhood um, that contradict what we think about with the ocean. But then also dishwasher safe. There's you know it's it's not some even that uh, there was one person who read the book remarked that it was the irony there lies in the fact that in, that in fact they're harmful for the environment but to me the irony is much is is more about is more about that that we 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 worked hard to make them safe for the dishwasher you know they're in your kitchen they're going to make it through, but now they're out there on the ocean so it's more the the incongruities i think those contradictions that 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 well make make me smile so and and you actually and you saw the article like were you just um i feel like it, it was you were wearing was it when you were wearing your english teacher hat still is it yeah. can you remind me and then and you saw the article and this is when the yeah no so how did i first this was i was teaching um high school english in uh, manhattan at a at a friend's school um mostly teaching things like macbeth and uh uh, American literature, and um, but I also taught a journalism course, li- kind of a literary journalism course, and uh, and it was one of my students uh, fulfilling an assignment um, to write about, to investigate and write about an artifact, an assignment uh, inspired by things like um, John McPhee's book Oranges, inspired about some of the material history that uh, James Agee does and let us now praise famous men. The idea of reading your material world closely, uh, and he and he, uh, um, uh, as I commanded him to, do, went and dug through some uh, uh, newspaper archives to to find trivia about rubber duckies, and happened upon one of many stories. It turns out they tended to be very short. Um, the one he found was from two thousand and three, and there were a whole bunch of stories in two thousand and three because. Um, uh, oceanographers, and this is partly why we know so much about the story, um, had had been following the journey of the toys um, in a couple of different ways. One by corresponding with beach beachcombers and lighthouse keepers, trying to determine where the, these toys washed up, because then you have a data point from which you can um, learn something about the currents. Um, but then they also were using computer models uh, to predict where the toys would go, and then. 
to predict um, when and if they made it through the Arctic. They also used historical data, historical records of shipwrecks and other um, drift studies to figure out when and when these toys would begin appearing in the North Atlantic. And um, so it's and it's quite a saga. Yeah, I, I mean that. I, I mean that's kind of irresistible, right? I mean, <laughs> Donovan, let's take a short break and then we'll come back and we'll hear okay. we'll hear about this irresistible saga. Okay. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Donovan Hone is here. His book Moby Duck. You're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Donovan Hone is here. His book, Moby Duck, the true story of 28,800 bath toys lost at sea and of the beachcombers, oceanographers, environmentalists, and fools, including the author, who went in search of them. Um, so we were talking about this, the saga and yeah. what and the fascination. So you were fascinated. You were supposed to I think you were on assignment to write a story about Detroit elephants. Yeah. yeah. I mean, well, <laughs> elephants in the Detroit Zoo, I yeah. think. <laughs> yeah, that was my my the way I'd set up arranged my 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 career at that point was I was teaching 9 months a year, but then pretty every summer I was I, w- I was writing um usually for Harper's magazine and I'd already arranged um uh, I had a contract to write a piece uh, for Harper's that would have um, actually I still kind of wish I could write um, but it may be, may be behind me now um, about uh, uh, the elephants of the Detroit Zoo had who that year in 2005 people may remember this uh, if they were paying attention um, ended up leaving Detroit for a sanctuary in the foothills of the Sierra Nevada mountain and the um, uh, zookeeper at the Detroit Zoo was a, was a fascinating guy. That's sort of exactly the sort of person I'm always um, like to spend time with. It was just interesting. I, I tend to be attracted to scientists, but but scientists who also have kind of eccentric curiosities and and uh, fields of knowledge. Um, and I wish I could remember his name, but I don't want to say it and get it wrong because I don't have my notes here. Um, the uh, the uh, anyway, he had decided that it was that that he couldn't, in good conscience, keep elephants at such a northern latitude, uh, and was going actually against the policies of the uh, I think it's called the American Association of Zoos and Aquariums, which had said no, it's okay, and it certainly didn't welcome uh, setting a precedent because elephants are extremely popular. Um, but I loved actually the Detroit Zoo. I spent uh, March of, of 2005 uh, um, doing interviews there and wandering around there. And there's something about it that partly because it hasn't been as regularly renovated as um, certainly uh, the Bronx Zoo in New York or the San Diego Zoo, where you can kind of see the various layers of our ideas about zoos and the wilderness. This is a recurring, uh, that kind of borderland between 
um, the natural world and our representations of the natural world is a is a re, is a recurring um, preoccupation of mine. And so I was going to be writing about that and following these elephants um, who were very charismatic on uh, their journey from Detroit to Sierra Nevada Mountains, which is actually where I grew up. So that that image of well, I grew up in Northern California in the Bay Area, but I knew that landscape well, and that I, that image of these uh, elephants uh, ending up there um, uh, was was as a destination to a journey. That was my plan, and then I thought, well, um, but my wife uh, was pregnant, and I had a kid due uh, uh, in late July, early August, and I shouldn't be uh, in Detroit or in the Sierra Nevada mountains. So I was going to write about these rubber duckies that fell overboard instead, and then having changed subjects, ended up um, <laughs> flying to Alaska. So uh, even even farther than, than, than Detroit. So. And then and then this became this obsession that has that took years. Yeah. Then. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, what's it like to because you've got the tiger by the tail, like this right. obsession, this fascination then segueing a little bit into obsession. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, I think what it was was that that was that um, it, be, it had become a fable. I mean, it really had the, the to the point where there were news reports in two thousand and seven in the British tabloids. Um, uh, you know, even after I'd been writing about it for a while, and it's now fifteen years after. Didn't these they toys, wash up in Cornwall? They <laughs> did not, but you would, <laughs> but you wouldn't know it from reading the British tabloids because they all trumpeted the the duck armada is here, um, uh, and uh, and they even have featured one of them featured a photograph of a, a duck that had been found in Cornwall, and I looked at the photograph, and it's not the right duck. But so this, there's something about the story that that it, it's 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 fascinating to me. It is fascinating to how why something is trivial goes into becoming a kind of a fable. Um, uh, why that of all stories? Why does it capture our imagination? But then there was also this sense of of the way in which, in telling that story, we were we were we were we were making of the world um, a children's book. And in fact, Eric Carle has written a children's mm-hmm. book about this event. But we were making it a, the world into a children's book, um, into an Eric Carle book. Um, and I wanted to go to the the other direction. Um, that within this this children's fable, there seemed to me um, all sorts of mysteries. Uh, um, the the shipping industry is mysterious. And dark sides. Yeah, there are, sure. The shipping industry is mysterious and there are, there are dark sides there. Um, uh, uh, the idea that things fall off of container ships was surprising and astonishing um, and hard to explain when I, when I set out the factories of China and Pearl River Delta. And of course, we've all heard various things about what it's like over there, but it's hard. What, what is it really like? Um, and we're entangled now, not only by currents and winds, but by the chain of production, and and yet mostly, I think often, certainly, this is how I felt. I felt a little bit had as as a as a as a um, relatively um, comfortable and safe uh, American um, uh, had been a little bit infantilized, and in that there were all these these um, uh, parts of the world that I was connected with, uh, um, uh, but but of which I remained often um, happily ignorant and so so I wanted I wanted to I wanted to um, to take the story about as far as I could in the other in the other direction from a children's story and how does it become how did you manage it like this research because one thing like in some ways like the poets like everything's connected right yeah. you can see yeah. and once you start digging yeah. you can see that it's 
there's unity there or something leads to you to yeah. the next place. Yeah. How did you manage the research? Um, uh, if it's, uh, partly it's part of, it's, it's because I enjoy that part of it. Um, the, that it's, that I, that I, I, I like the, um, serendipities of, of that, that emerge out of research, um, uh, that, that they often, um, that's, that's, uh, I, I, just to use an example for somebody else's work, the, there's this opening prologue to McPhee's oranges where he just does this catalog of, of, of details about oranges. And in the, by the end, you get to the end of it, this, this ordinary thing that we take for granted as an, an orange has, has become this magical thing, um, with this, with a, with, with a, a history that, that takes you, you know, through, through, uh, Western painting and around the world. Or another writer that I think about in, in this regard that, um, uh, is the, uh, is the essayist Guy Davenport, who wrote a lot about the geography of the imagination, which is an interesting idea for me. Um, that the, that the, that there's a that you can almost um, create an, um, an imaginary map of the world as we see it, as well as one that's that's actually um, kind of scientifically observable. Uh, so, well, because there's ways of seeing the world, right? Like right. one of them, the the the, the blind oceanographer yeah. Amy Bauer, like yeah. creating those like the the colored currents of yeah. you know, like this. If you see it, that's one way of seeing the world. Yeah. Like you can't say it's not. Yeah. Well, this is this is you know I think that um, uh, getting back to something we talked about at the beginning of the interview earlier in the interview about about having read a lot of Thoreau when I was younger. Um, the if you look in the tradition of American nature writing, so much of it is visual. I mean, you um, I mean, Annie Dillard wrote her famous essay "Seeing," and if you go th- march through, it's there's there's so much about seeing the world and seeing also becomes then a metaphor for knowing and understanding. Uh, but what interested me in spending time with scientists is it seemed to me that, that there was a, a point in time, um, and maybe I have a certain amount of uh, longing for this um, because it feels to me irretrievable, when you could be a naturalist. You know, you go, like Darwin is a great observer and he's going around and inspecting dust. And there's an every, by looking closely, um, the act of looking would lead to revelation. And w- when you go with uh, travel with scientists looking at the natural world now, there's, it, it requires a different kind of vision. Um, uh, it's, I think it's, I think it's looking alone frequently and it's kind of a recurring, um, uh, theme or worry of the book, uh, isn't enough that, that, that there are ways in which seeing can be deceptive, um, and there are ways in which, um, you know, certainly in the case of that scientist, Amy Bauer, you mentioned, um, in which um, the human eye um, can't perceive phenomena. So she was studying these um, mesoscale eddies, they're called, but they're essentially storm systems that are underwater, um, which I love this idea that you'd be sailing on calm seas and there's essentially a slow moving storm um, swirling beneath you. And so how do so scientists now, for certainly oceanographers who are, dealing with the medium of water, um, which has always been, uh, I mean, certainly there in, in Melville as well, um, more opaque <laughs> um, than seeing things on land, uh, the depths and the darkness and the 
changeability of that medium um, have had to require all these new powers of perception and using a lot of technology and a whole lot of math. <laughs> it's hard to, uh, to, to parse. So the idea of just being a naturalist and looking closely, um, you reach, there's a way in which we've reached a limit. So you, I wanted to, in order to under, really understand the ocean through her eyes, you almost have to surrender vision alone. And so, so it seems to me like when this, this journey, these chases yeah. in Moby Duck, that you are, you're acting as witness and you're synthesizing, mm. um, and absorbing everything that you're, you're finding what, as witness, mm. what are the responsibilities of that as you see it for Moby Duck? Well, and the, and that that emerged there. I mean, there are places in the narrative where that emerged. I mean, there is there is I think um, uh, uh, certainly in places like Ann Arbor, um, there are people. I mean, I think it's easy for one to um, read about plastic in the ocean, or um, or working conditions in a factory in China, and feel like a certain sense of guilt and. Uh, um, uh, and, 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 and so to, so in those, in those parts of the book where I'm going to China or where I'm sailing out on the high Pacific, um, trawling for plastic, I wanted to be able to, to answer that. Um, but in a way the, it, 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 but yeah. And what do you mean by that? Like be able to answer that? Like what? It, <laughs> well, so if we take the simple question of like, I didn't, hadn't heard about the issue of, uh, that sometimes gets somewhat misleadingly, misleadingly referred to as the garbage patch, um, more accurately uh, described as simply um, uh, plastic pollution in the marine environment, not as catchy as garbage patch, I know. Um, but it's, uh, it's something I hadn't heard about before. And 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 when I first heard these uh, descriptions from, from oceanographers, people I have seen very journalistically reliable sources and are, um, but nevertheless, the imagery conjured forth um, uh, something sensational, this this uh, floating junkyard, and then and that that raises questions. Okay, so if this thing exists, um, um, uh, how concerned about it should we be? Um, uh, and if uh, we can see it from space, uh, which which we can't. Though. Oh, we can't. Okay, the, that's is, part of the myth. Yeah, that swirls. I, I was told this by one. Well, I was told that that if we could see it from space, it would be like the spot on Jupiter. But these, there's there's but the, 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 here's the tr- the thing about this is that. Is that one, there are, the plastic gets into the marine environment all over the world. It comes out of uh, watersheds. It's not simply things falling off of ships. Um, uh, and it's even it's particleized uh, at a certain point. Absolutely. So how can you? Absolutely, the stuff the stuff um, it doesn't biodegrade. Things don't digest it, but it does photodegrade. It breaks down. It gets smaller and smaller. Some of it's floating at the surface where you might be able to see it if it's colorful enough and your eyes are sharp enough. Uh, but some of it is semi buoyant, so it's below the surface. So it really, in the better analogy than to forget floating junkyard and think like um, uh, emissions in the atmosphere. I mean, it's it ends up becoming almost blowing like dust um, through. The wind blows through the water column, um, and, and it has there's much in common if we're going to think about it as a policy issue to thinking about about uh, uh, airborne pollutants because the currents, as with as with the winds, um, disperse plastic pollution so that 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 um, it's, it makes it difficult to hold the polluter accountable. Um, were, were you, you know, active in in were you sort of having green leanings or sort of having or is this something that became part of because it, it seems like you you. You, you care about it. Like, that's why it has a place oh, in the book. Not because you were meant, oh, you had to check off that part of the duck's <laughs> impact, right? Just to make sure you were th- thorough. But yeah. it, you seem to really care. And so it's not... 
Yeah, it's part I of mean, the mission. I or... cared. I cared in part because in 2005, when I started, there was there, it hadn't been widely reported in the news, and I was like, I've, "This is a journalistic story. How come I?" There was really there only were some a, a small newspaper stories about it. There hadn't been um, so there was that um, the, the kind of journalistic curiosity. But yeah, I also had been partly for the for, for this these preoccupations that have come up in our discussion um, uh, about thinking about the natural world and and reading uh, certain strains in American literature. Um, um, had thought about it. I also was, uh, um, um, you know, uh, I was a totally crazy nature boy when I was a, a kid in the Bay Area. Um, went to a, an oceanographic summer camp when I was 12, where we spent most of our time in tide pools. So uh, yeah. I, I imbibed directly and indirectly a lot of a lot of uh, of of the um, uh, love for the ocean and certainly notions of stewardship about it. Um, but I suppose there's, I guess one of the harder things about it for me is that, is that I actually, um, found myself, um, there's sections of the book where I'm fairly critical with the ways in which imagery, um, um, is used as a form of persuasion, even by environmentalists whose intentions might might be good um, and the way that stories can be simplified and evidence simplified and not simply because I want m more complicated um, stories but because I think it, that, 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 that there's, a, there's a responsibility in the storytelling that ultimately um, m matters a great deal um, that will have effects in the real real world. Um, and so you seem to unsimplify the story like that seems to be in some ways, in the earlier section yeah. with Goak and with the different, yeah. if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yeah. But um, so now I, I can see in a way what you're up to by by going like sun, finding the layers underneath or stretching it out and seeing what's actually there. Um, because sometimes it seems like um, I, I wondered where you were fall because you're saying at some points you had to be critical. And so maybe this was your way of being critical was to actually analyze and look very closely, very well, intimately. You know, and, 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 you know, the, the go K example is a good one. It's, it's, uh, you know, you you take um, uh, the, the this is a group. It's a it's a conservation group. And are we running out of time? You know, let's take a short break, okay. and we'll be right back. But let's go to that that section. Okay. So we'll take a short break. You've got living writers today. Donovan Hone, his book Moby Duck. We'll be back. If you're just tuning in, you've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, 
Donovan Hone here. His book, Moby Duck, The True Story of 28,800 Bath Toys Lost at Sea, and of the beachcombers, oceanographers, environmentalists, and fools, including the author who went in search of them. You definitely have to take a breath in there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay, so Donovan, we were talking about Goak and about... It's it's all connected, like with this witnessing and what is the responsibility and how are how are you commenting on what you're seeing and witnessing? Right. So you know this group, um, uh, Gulf of Alaska Keepers, the long version of their name. Um, I just I, I I went into it and it sounds like here you've got a scrappy environmental group. They're they're um, they would seem to be doing these heroic things of of uh, organizing these massive cleanups that aren't like when people go down a beach and pick up litter. They actually have to. Um, they're like, living on a boat. Living on a boat. You, you have to get a helicopter to ex- remove things. Exactly. <laughs> You're in the remote, inaccessible parts of the Alaskan coastline, um, uh, sometimes for weeks at a time. Um, and uh, and then they have photos, and you see these photos um, of, of this particular, for instance, the the uh, uh, half-mile beach that um, that I spent a good deal of time at in the Alaskan wilderness called Gore Point. Um, it was it was it was impressive, almost kind of beautiful and fascinating. The the amount of flotsam that accumulated over the last uh, sixty years in the plastics era. Um, they it was it was in the ballpark of 50, 50 tons of it by the time they got it out, um, and all in a, a totally uninhabited remote um, uh, beach behind a berm of driftwood. Uh, and then, so they show the, the pictures of the before and the pictures of after, and suddenly this wilderness looks pristine. And there's a there's a narrative there about about um, what they're doing and. Um, and then it got it got messier um, the farther it went along. So what exactly? Well, and plus yeah. they must have taken the photo pretty quickly after they got right. the bags out of there. There's the question of futility. Um, have they managed to beautify a place without actually doing a whole lot to solve a problem? There's that. Um, there's also is it are they restoring an idea of the wilderness? As, mm-hmm. You know, we especially in Alaska, it's so hard to separate from our. It's become. The the idea you even you go there and you feel like you're 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 you know, looking at a cruise ship commercial as much as as actually experiencing a landscape because it's become such a symbol of the American wilderness and it's and being pristine. Um, oh, then again, too, the the other parts of it was that um, a lot of these cleanup campaigns end up being um, uh, sponsored uh, by uh, uh, have they have corporate benefactors that tend to be companies beverage companies, tobacco companies um, that produce things that are the most commonly uh, common marine pollutants. And um, so they're sponsoring cleanups, even as they're opposing uh, uh, legislation like depo- uh, bottle deposits, etc. Um, so that the, not only are we cleaning up uh, perhaps simply an idea of the wilderness, we also may be cleaning up uh, the reputation of a polluter. Uh, so the, the, that's, that's I guess that's what I mean by saying I wanted to keep going to, to be able to tell a more complicated story. And you get down to even something like there are these images that are really powerful and they've become famous. Greenpeace did build an ad campaign around them. Um, there are um, some wonderful, very serious um, nature photographers who've, who've, who've made these images of... Um, um, albatrosses out on these rookeries in the northwestern Hawaiian archipelago, and they're astonishing. They're these carcasses of dead fledglings that l- really look like a pinata, and they're opened oh. and they're full of plastic. And you see those images, and it seems a simple story. Like uh, this is the, the, here's a victim of what we've done, and the weapon with which we did it is plastic. Um, but 
and has talked with um, a wildlife biologist named uh, Beth Flint, who's responsible for overseeing those sanctuaries. And 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 then that photograph becomes tells a, begins to become a much less reliable document um, because the 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 largest cause of we don't know that she said the inf- the mortality of these fledglings is the number one immediate cause is dehydration. Um, why are they getting dehydrated? Well. Um, the climate is changing. It's getting warmer. It's the the rookeries are at the very southern edge of the albatross habitat. Albatross normally prefers colder northerly latitudes. Um, and then there's an invasive species of ground cover, a golden verbena, um, that's thick and it impedes the movement of air and has elevated the temperature on the ground where these where these albatrosses lay their eggs. Uh, and then she went on to say, and really the we know if we want to just do something very that would have an immediate effect. We could clean up lead paint on the old derelict military base at, uh, at Midway, which is where there have been, you know, uh, mortality studies connecting the lead paint to these fledgling dust. And then if she goes on, that the really for population dynamics, it's the adult birds you have to worry about the most because um, one of those adult birds gets snared on a hook, um, a long line hook, uh, while it's foraging. You can't fly back and feed the fledgling, so you'll lose not only an adult bird, you'll also lo- likely use, lose the fledglings. They depend on both parents, et cetera, et cetera. And so then I you, feel like you yeah. might have an albatross book. No, I mean, you. there are others. others <laughs> but, but you know what, would, what became interesting for me was, was again, thinking about the way the, the, it seems to me that any animal you see, any animal, how quickly, I think the human imagination it must be inherently animistic, you know, going back to the cave painting, that we, we can't help but, but, but attribute a story uh, to, to whether it's we're, we're attributing sympathy or whatever, um, but we bring to life uh, these, these animals and, and, and in a way that's fascinating and not, not childlike at all, but, uh, but also makes it hard, I think, to, to sometimes um, see clearly. And so with the, with the book here, with Moby Duck. Yeah. This this is how many years was it in the making, Donovan? It, it like, was it was this. the better part of five years. There there was probably two of those years we were traveling in the field, a lot of time in libraries, a lot of time alone writing. But it was the better part of five years, yeah. And and is this then is that safe to say this is the longest project of that I've done? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. No, it is safe to say um, it's the longest project I've done. Though I would have liked to have had more time, <laughs> and and we'll try yeah. to get try to get more for the next book. So, yeah. Are you? Is there a part two? Not of this book. I this for me. I've 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 exhausted. I, you know, I find that whenever I pick a new nonfiction project, it always seems to me slightly mysterious why something captures my imagination. And then in retrospect, it seems like there are these obsessions that I'm going to, but it's not something I'm knowingly doing. And actually, the next book I have ideas about. Um, will there'll be no seafaring, um, and it's going to take me uh, if I travel to Russia and Poland and into the past, a totally different area. But I'll probably end up, who knows, writing about birds. <laughs> Is it all? Yeah, there's going to be a bird in there, yeah, so put somewhere, a bird on it. <laughs> And so can you tell us more? Is that like the the current project is actually also going to be long term and require these these travels, this, yeah. this the research? Some travel. Is yeah. it connected to family as well? No, I mean, the, it's not as it's 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 much more going to be much more of a historical narrative, though. There'll, there'll be I'm, as I imagine it. Uh, and I'm still working on the proposal. So um, I don't want to jinx myself. Oh, okay. you know? But yes, but it, but it, but it's but it'd be it's there'll be it's it's going to be um, a story that will take me um, a little bit back into um, an overlooked corner of the 20th century. 
country and and um, Russian fiction and American film and other things. So. And, and do you have so then so this starts to take shape and there's yeah. many facets to yeah. it by the sounds of it, Donovan. Yeah. Yeah. So then do you also have these other projects that are, are smaller or is no project <laughs> small and are they all connected? Yeah. I've, and then I, you move f- forward after. I, I, I tend to either I think I've, I've come to a point where I've um, I've tend to either be right very small um, uh, back when I was writing poetry or short essays um, but I think increasingly um, I mean one of the work I did for Harper's they were they were all pushing pushing the the ceiling uh, uh, the word count ceiling for for uh, a magazine feature I tend to be um, th- th- yeah they tend to be long um, so this this one's going to be a long project and it'll, and if once I uh, jump in um, all the way uh, I don't imagine there'll be lots of smaller things on the side. Will it be that you can do pieces of it and then it'll have a life in GQ, for example? Or well, it's sort of the thing I'm trying to figure out right now is exactly how and um, how to how to make that uh, happen. Probably, um, uh, you know, there might be there might be uh, ways to to um, um, do something for GQ while doing research for a book, but I don't imagine that the book itself is is going to end up. Uh, uh, it doesn't seem quite. Um, um, GQ enough. So. <laughs> I don't know why, but that just sounds really funny, Donovan. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's historical for one. It's just, I'll leave it at that. So. Okay. Yeah. We're going to have someone with windblown hair on the cover no, no, or no. something. Yeah. No. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's not about the wind. Um, <laughs> and so, but you, you, you mentioned lapsed poet. Are there yeah. poems creeping back in so that you can like have that way of seeing or being as well as these... That's interesting. There's um, uh, another another MFA grad from Michigan, Miles Harvey, who's become a friend, oh, yes. and, and he was sending a, he sent an email around recently asking people, writers, what they do when they're not writing, uh, working on a big writing project. How do they keep themselves, you know, in shape? You know, because there's a way, and like an athlete, you do train for it. And 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 I now that you mention it, I I, I could uh, I think I would end, I should probably write some poems because it is I do miss it. Donovan Hone, thanks so much for being here today. Thanks so much for having me. It's been great talking with you. You've been listening to Living Writers. Um, Today on the program, Donovan Hone, his book, Moby Duck. Um, I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, September 7, 2011. In Los Angeles, I'm Dorian Marina. Coming up, leaked documents show the role drug companies play in U.S. policy around the world. The ability of the federal government to track and respond to storms runs into budget cuts. And we begin our coverage of the 10th anniversary of September 11th by examining how Muslim Americans have been affected since the terrorist attacks. Those stories and more. First, this news. I'm Jess Burns with headlines.